0: September 9th, 2018, and this is the first ever No Borders Media Weekly News Roundup. Earlier today, Elle Jones from Halifax, Syed Hassan from Toronto, Harjip Grewal from Vancouver, and me, Jaggi Singh from Montreal, got together by phone to talk about the news. Some of the topics we covered include the nationwide prison strike, Trump resistance, and resisting the racist far-right. Our conversation included opposition to the Kinder Morgan Trans Mountain Pipeline, a victory by disabled rights activists in Nova Scotia, the current Quebec elections, and resisting the Ford government in Ontario internationally we reference elections in brazil and sweden as well as grassroots organizing by queer communities in india and elsewhere in the commonwealth our conversational detours include colin kaepernick and nike the woke industrial complex and locking the doors of the mccain funeral to start a long overdue war crimes tribunal we're hoping to do news roundups like this about once a week no borders media based in toronto and montreal is an autonomous left-wing media network we share and create content that supports the struggles of communities in resistance with a focus on the self-determination struggles of Indigenous peoples, migrants, refugees, and working-class people of colour, all in the context of opposition to capitalism and colonialism. Some current focuses include migrant justice, resistance to borders, anti-fascism, and anarchism. We are in the early stages of our independent media project. To stay in touch, send us an email at nobordersmedianetwork at gmail.com, or look for No Borders Media on Facebook or SoundCloud. Much more to come in the coming weeks and months. Let's go to that conversation between El, Jaggi, Hassan, and Harjap right now. Hi everyone. This is No Borders Media and this is one of this is the first news roundup that we're doing. We have three people on the line uh, in addition to me. We're we we have people from Halifax, from Toronto, from Vancouver and myself Jaggy in Montreal, but let's start out on the East Coast. Uh, Elle, introduce yourself.
1: Hi, I'm El Jones. I'm a teacher and activist, uh, advocate in Halifax.
0: And as we head west, I guess I'm next. I'm Jaggi, Jaggi Singh, and I'm producer and host of No Borders Media, and I've been a community organizer here in Montreal for, I guess, almost two decades. Wow, I'm old. Um, Hassan, you're next.
2: Hi, uh, my name's Hassan, and I organize with migrants and undocumented people here in Toronto, uh, along with some other things, and so good to
3: chat with all of you today.
0: And the person who had to get up really early is Harjap. Harjap.
3: Um, yeah, Harjap. Uh, also, I think hopefully approaching two decades uh, soon, um, basically uh, organizing, in community organizing, and uh, various farms out uh, on the West Coast and uh, Coastal Irish territories. Territory.
0: So there's a lot in the news, but I think one thing that's particularly inspiring and something that resonates with all of our politics is the prison strike, which officially ends today. The nationwide prison strike, but has been going on since uh, since August. And Elle, I know you've been an outside supporter, so maybe you can start us off on giving us some background on the strike and what, what strikes you about what's inspiring or important about this prison strike.
1: Yeah, so uh, the prison strike was called by U.S. prisoners, certainly across 17 states and more people have joined in, and it was called for August 21st to September 9th, both of which mark important dates in the prison liberation movement. Um, for example, today is the death of George Jackson that marks the end of the strike, so those dates were chosen deliberately. Um, There's been a series of other strikes. So in 2016, there was a strike that was called, um, and I believe there was another one earlier. So there's been a number of strikes that have been happening, but this is the largest one. Um, What's important about this one in Canada in particular is that the prisoners in Burnside Prison, which is a provincial facility here in Halifax, joined in the strike. So on August 19th, they released their statement, so both calling that they were in solidarity with the American strike and releasing their own demands. Um, I think what's really important about that statement to understand is that it was very intentional and strategic what they did. So if you look at the demands, they're very, very basic demands. There's stuff like air circulation, shoes that fit, mm-hmm. uh, healthy food in the canteen. Um, they asked for a rehabilitation program. They talk about access to health care. So they very deliberately chose 10 demands that are very, very basic about the quality of life, human rights, Um, They're things that they either are guaranteed in the Correctional Act, have been promised to them before and didn't get, or are present in other jails in the province. And I just want us to understand that this is actually a very, very strategic decision, right? That um, they chose to have so-called less radical demands because they chose to pick demands that they thought that, you know, could be responded to, that it would be obvious if they weren't responded to that this was doable, and also that the public could perhaps see that, yes, not having a towel or a change of clothes in prison is a problem so um it was a really um i think they did a really really good job of of um positioning themselves so that statement was released on the 19th um and it also reviews some of the history of prison liberation so speaks about those movements and they position themselves as the descendants of those movements and in solidarity with those um since then so it took our minister of justice until thursday to respond so this is going on from august 21st and in fact the statement's released on the 19th which is when they really sort of say that they start their protest. Um, initially, the Department of Justice said there's no protest happening. We have all these programs. None of this is a problem. We have great menus. So essentially said they were lying about the conditions. And one of the things that's really interesting that happens is that in the statement, the prisoners say, we understand the staff are facing injustice as well, that they are workers in the system. And so the staff actually has been... I wouldn't necessarily go as far as supportive, but the staff has certainly validated that a lot of the conditions are problems and that they themselves are affected by that. So they're saying, yeah, you're right, and we're going to work in that condition. So there's been this kind of at least small solidarity between the prison workers and the people in prison that's been a really interesting feature of this strike. Um, So a lot of people that work in the prison, like the head of the union, said, yeah, I want a response on this stuff, too. But the Department of... And that validated the demands, right? Because they were calling them liars, which is what always happens, right? People say, oh, they're in prison, they're criminals. Except we had staff saying, they're right, they're right, this is happening, it's true, it's worse than they're telling you, right? So um, Mm -hmm. finally on Thursday, the Minister of Justice released the response and um, just a nonsense response as usual, right? Mm -hmm. So, oh, Mm -hmm. you know, we understand that prison, like, there's a lot of challenges, uh, you know but what's interesting about that statement is that they go back on stuff they said in the initial statement which is pointed out by prisoners They're so like now you're telling us you intend to have all these programs but you told us at first you denied mm-hmm. it and said we did have all these programs right mm-hmm. so they're like which is it so yesterday we were able to actually publish an article you can look on the halifax examiner that's also where the demands come out where over the phone i read this statement to one of the prisoners because uh, of course they don't have access to it so that's the other thing right the minister of justice is mm-hmm. responding to the strike but doesn't to respond to the prisoners. He's basically talking to the mm-hmm. public and saying, oh, this is all we're doing. And we're like, but why aren't you talking to the people that release these demands? You're saying, oh, we're having a great conversation. It's very important. It's like, but you're not having that conversation with the people who caused the conversation. So I read that statement to the people in prison. You get some um, very interesting responses. So basically, um, but he's not telling the truth, right? Like, oh, you're saying you're getting programmed now. It's been 18 years. So like, what do you want, right? Um, So that was kind of what happened at the end of the strike, but they did actually force a government response, which I think is very interesting. Um, There's also an article that came out in the Canadian press where a lot of the advocates are saying that uh, this is inspiring to other prisons because they went about it in this way with releasing demands and calling upon the public and calling for this collective responsibility. Um, So we'll see Mm -hmm. what effect that that has perhaps on future prison organizing.
0: Hassan or Harjep, do you want anything about the prison strike?
2: I mean, I think what's really interesting is how similar this is to what happened with the immigration detainee hunger strike uh, and the last protest that happened here in Ontario. So you've heard about it, Al, but, you know, it started... Mm-hmm. Give us, give us the
0: year, the Give years. us the year, Hassan, Hassan and uh, some of the, like, really quickly, the basic background to that.
2: Just, uh, the first one was in September 2013, 191 immigration detainees went on hunger strike. In the end, four people were on hunger strike for over 60 days. And there was another one in the summer of 2015 and then another one in June 2016. But this really, you know, what you're saying really echoes what we saw where prisoners, you know, started out with really basic demands about um, asbestos in the walls and not having access to showers and not being able to make phone calls and um, not having decent food, etc. It did, of course, um, in this case, change to sort of broader immigration detention demands. But the government, you know, did issue a response, didn't meet with the detainees, didn't tell them that they had a response. Um, And really, uh, you know, the media was not really on site, had a difficulty reaching out to the prisoners, all the while while the government was saying, look, this hunger strike is not happening. Um, These, you know, it's totally fine, everything's fine. Um, People have, you know, we don't detain people, we don't detain them in provincial prisons. It seems almost like a... The, the, the set response to prisoner activism, um, which
1: I thought was interesting. Yeah, they said that here, too. There's no protest. And, of course, the irony of that is mm-hmm. in the past when people have, you know, rioted, as they would call it, but, you know, like, so um uh, mm-hmm. taking it out on property or refused to lock totally. up or you know not obey yeah, the authority yeah, yeah. of the prison. Of course it that's mm-hmm. immediately unrest in the prison. These people are animals. So now they're like we're gonna be peaceful. We're not even gonna get mm-hmm. disciplinary incidents. So they're like we have been so careful in what we're doing in the prison and then they're like, Oh mm-hmm. but they're not doing anything because there's no discipline mm-hmm. they're not refusing to lock right. up, right? So, <laughs> totally,
0: totally you know. when when I And I'm... we
2: also saw here in Ontario that uh you know prisoner um the guards actually came out uh, and the union came out saying, Look, they are right. Um and we don't, you know, we're not trained to, for example, deal with this complex issue of immigration detention. Um, so there's definitely, I don't think we had that kind of like sort of back and forth conversation as much as would have made sense, like to actually build solidarity between workers and prisoners, which, as you know, is complicated. Uh, but I do think it's something the labor movement really needs to deal with this in this country um, where it is unionized workers who are responsible for incarcerating people, as well as denying services, rights, etc.
0: Um, I had a chance to, uh, along with Elle, I had a chance to speak with um, a member of the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee in Oakland. And one thing that strikes me about this prison strike, um, beyond beyond what we're talking about here in in Canada, is... Just the media attention that has been given to it uh, worldwide, but also in the U.S. and in Canada. I mean, it was a lead item on CBC. Uh, Kevin Rashid Johnson, a prisoner who was who's been involved with the strike in the U.S., had a had an item in in uh, in the Guardian. But even in the U.S., it's it's everywhere. Just it's just pretty stunning. Um, and from what I understand, this strike was was actually not supposed to happen. Now it was supposed to happen next year, but because of the deaths of inmates during a riot in South Carolina, it, it got moved up. And uh, so you even have a piece in the New Yorker that I was reading in Elle, and l in that New Yorker piece, it talks about uh, the strike taking place in X amount of states in the U.S. and Nova Scotia. So kudos, kudos to the kudos to the folks there are organizing. But what what really gets to me uh, and I'm not a am not currently an active outside organizer on prison stuff, but I can appreciate just the amount of organizing this takes and the innovative organizing this takes to, for ha- because the, the people actually doing the organizing are the people on the inside. Um, there's a lot of stuff that can't be shared um, by the people who engage in it, but clearly one thing that has sort of transformed the ability of prisoners to organize is cell phones. Um, and that's clearly mm-hmm. been something that's been crucial to people communicating and being able to coordinate.
1: Well, we've been, I, the provincial has different systems, so that's been in the states. Provincial, they don't have the same restricted list that you have in federal. Um, so the phones are an issue in Provincial because they're outsourced to this company, tell me, um, that makes mm-hmm. this a massive profit. Like, they literally pay our province to have the contract because they make so much of the exploitive service phone fees to families in prisons, mm-hmm. right? So they charge 30% mm-hmm. extra on the calls plus the cost of the calls. So they make so much money that they pay the province for the privilege of having that contract to exploit us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing is that Those calls are obviously monitored, and they can block numbers, but they have quite a wide range of calling. They can really call out anybody except um, if, like, a victim or something is blocked on their list. So um, we haven't had the same kind of thing with cell phones. No, they're not allowed. And so people have had to – in the States, a lot of people have had to smuggle them in, right, Um, as contraband. But that hasn't really been an issue here. We haven't had that problem. But, of course, what has happened is that they – other than about two days of the strike, they have been on a lockdown, so 23 hours a day lockdown. So getting out to use the phones has been challenging, um, and so sometimes it's been media requests, and even if people want to do it, by the time they get out three days later to use the phone, it, it has passed by. And this is obviously a, a strategy that the jail has used, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, let's let's move on from uh, an inspiring example of resistance on an issue that is, you know, is, is at the heart of colonialism and imperialism it goes right back to the origins of of the u.s uh, the prison industrial complex the prison justice system so let's move on from from an inspiring example of resistance the prison strike to <laughs> to what is perhaps a less inspiring example of resistance which is this so-called uh trump resistance um like every week uh trump uh dominates the headlines but this past week was interesting in a lot of ways the bob woodward book um uh, was announced, and there, you know, there's a lot of salacious, I guess, um, things in there about reconstructed conversations and Trump's profanity and all that. And that's not a big surprise, I guess. There was stuff around free trade and NAFTA and the renegotiation, re- and maybe uh, U.S. and Mexico going at it alone. But there was also this um, this column in the uh, in the New York Times, an anonymous column by somebody who's a senior administration official in the White House, who's saying, "I'm doing what I can to." stop the worst instincts of trump and i'm part of he even used the word resistance or she we don't know who this person is so they they used uh um, the word resistance although they said this is not the popular kind of resistance that you get from the left um and they also are clearly loyal to american imperialism they say that they like the fact that trump is for a strong military um they like Aspects of his economic policy so it's it's almost as if not almost but the word resistance has been completely debased with with this uh, with this uh, column in the New York Times but worse than that it's I think it's distracting a lot of us from grounding our resistance in things like the prison strike and things like. Occupy ICE actions that are happening in the US in in terms of meaningful resistance and meaningful issues. So wondering if any of you, I've I've just gone on a little rant there, but if any of you have thoughts about uh, Trump resistance, especially uh, with the last week of news, maybe I'll start with with, uh, Harjap
3: yeah i I mean, I just maybe would echo what you said about it uh it, it kind of distracting us from what the resistance should look like on the ground. I mean, maybe just to say really quickly on the last issue, right like uh um you know in Tacoma, for example, I don't know if uh, folks have seen, but there's been this uh detention um detention strike, basically a hunger strike that detainees are doing, and there's been a solidarity with uh prison strike, but also Um, I was just going to add that um, it's been kind of nice in the in the talk with uh, labor um, that people have been mentioning in terms of the labor unions kind of mentioning these things um, about the conditions with work uh, prisoners inside prisons that you know uh, you know like unions like you know grassroots unions like the IWW and grassroots groups um, are kind of the front line of really showing the solidarity towards the prison strike even though there's been this kind of like um, you know trickling of it into the mainstream media But so, you know, that kind of example and that kind of solidarity is precisely the kind of resistance that's not going to be shown, right? Like everything is going to be suggested that we can do this through the Democratic Party. We can do this through legislation. The interim elections are coming up, that we can get change and people really want change and they don't want to deal with Trump. But um, the reality is, and I, I think everyone knows this, right, that the institutions that were in place before, whether it was Obama or the number of people that were being deported and detained, um, the level of police violence against communities was always there. Um, and what Trump sparked was actually a movement on the ground, um, grassroots movements in response to sort of the growing fascism in the States. And that part of it is not really being framed as a resistance. Actively, It's, it's actually actively being denounced as Um, something that's problematic or, um, you know, as people oftentimes say, it's not pragmatic or there isn't a solution there, right? Um, To the point where, I mean, and I don't want to delve on this too much, but like when you look at this entire um, issue of NAFTA and how they're dealing with it, it's actually very clear that they're not um, promoting any kind of radical vision or resistance to NAFTA, Right. So you kind of um, see this idea that there's a battle or there's a resistance from the Canadian government or the Mexican government. They're not resisting the actual agreement. They're just resisting terms, right? So the overall um, implication of um, the the debates that have been happening is is that NAFTA is okay. Um, we're not going to challenge corporate power, but just that we're going to kind of tweak um what's in the agreement and so this is this is what like i mean i think the mainstream media obviously feeds into this but actually a huge chunk of what traditionally was um leftist movements have allowed for um resistance to be sort of this reformist approach to um dealing with uh both nafta and um the trump regime uh,
0: it's, it even goes beyond a reformist approach uh if if you believe the sort of cnn new york times nexus uh in, in this Trump resistance, the heroes of the resistance are former FBI directors, the CIA is on our side, mm. uh, Russia is the enemy. Yeah. Uh, it's just absurd. Um, anyways, yeah. uh, Hassan or El, do you have any thoughts about uh, the last week of news in regards to Trump and this uh, so-called Trump resistance?
1: You see, you're be, being polite. I guess I'll jump in. Um, I guess one thing, a really good point that was made by one of the prison strike accounts is that the New York Times was willing to publish this anonymous article, right? But... Uh, haven't published accounts by prisoners in the strike because they have to be anonymous. So they're like, Oh no, that would be unethical. We can't publish that. But then of course publish this. So people have made that point um, going to the sort of points that being made about yeah, the so-called resistance. I mean, McCain's funeral is obviously the example of this it, um yeah. now we're supposed to hold it. So people were literally like the angels were weeping at McCain's funeral. You know? like, <laughs> that was all the Vietnamese that he killed, right? Like crying. Heaven. Um, yeah. But just because he sometimes even though he voted with trump what 85 percent of the time or something uh we were suddenly supposed to believe that mccain was a great statesman but beyond that some kind of human rights warrior right and then somebody said like they should lock the door at his funeral and start a war tri- crime tribunal right <laughs> which is the best mm-hmm. tweet i saw on that um the same thing with oh, yeah. um the monk debates right where it's like steve bannon david from was to sleeve that's a debate right like mm-hmm. somehow that's two sides of the issue right so um yeah, I mean, this has been, and people anticipated this uh, with Trump, I think, that now as long as you oppose Trump, you somehow become this radical figure. So whether that's Hillary Clinton, um, who, of course, uh, was into immigration detention herself, warmonger, what happened with Gaddafi in Libya, Honduras, you know, all of these things, but now we're supposed to believe that Hillary Clinton would have been this great feminist leader or Obama, of course, who, you know, drone bombed, had a kill list, but, you know, we're supposed to believe that Obama, oh, if we only had Obama back, right. Um, And I say that obviously as a black person who had to witness, you know, what people have called Obama's derangement syndrome, right, where the black community just um, ended up supporting all kinds of policies and refusing to be critical because people were so happy to have this representation that there was a complete in many ways abdication of any kind of. yeah, that people just didn't want to criticize. And of course, rightfully so, people were criticizing that Obama, Obama was facing racism, but then with no criticism of his warmongering, of his deportation, of his support for the prison industrial complex. So um, Trump has really elevated this so that, so the same thing, as long as you oppose Trump, somehow now this is what justice looks like. And we're gonna be fighting our way out of that for a long time, and especially in Canada, where mm-hmm. everything's always, uh, at least it's not Trump, or the belief that if racism or something is happening, it's only because Trump brought it here, right? So the only reason why we're mm-hmm. seeing this rise of white supremacy is Trump. And it's like, no, white supremacy has existed in Canada from jump,
0: right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hassan, wrap up our your our thoughts on this uh, Trump resistance.
2: I mean, I think I totally agree with what uh, El and Harjab and you've said. The only thing that I would add is um, what we're seeing is that, you know, we talk about, yes, the C.I.A.s, are the resistance, the XSBI directors are the resistance, but also the kind of sort of liberal um, democratic face that is Trudeau is seen as the resistance. Trudeau and Macron, Mm. um, all of these um, figures around the world are suddenly being seen as sort of the the counterbalance to Trump and the rise of the populist right. And um, what happens here in Canada is we're more interested in finding Trudeau-esque figures. So whether that was Kelly Leach, whether that's Doug Ford. Um, and we're almost more primed from the United States notion to fight sort of the only the far right. And so we're actually incapable of actually engaging with our own context right here, which isn't um, the far right leading the country, at least, but it, it's actually uh, sort of the more center right, which has a much prettier face and much better social media, etc. And um, so I think that we need to talk about Resistance in Canada uh, in a different way, and I think Trump and the anti-Trump resistance narrative is really also shaping Canadian politics, and it's quite uh, disconcerting how far we are from analyzing our own situation.
3: So let's yeah, and just like Jag, Jag before we jump, just to say maybe quickly, just to add that I don't know if people saw, but there was also an attempt to also make George W. Bush Jr. look like uh, somewhat of a hero <laughs> to like not mm-hmm. be exactly mm-hmm. exactly like Trump, but also just to say that there is an attempt from these same forces that are trying to just um, make themselves look better in the face of Trump to equate the far left with the far right so that they're the reasonable mm-hmm. people. And that, so so for them, like this is an opportunity for them to make their right-wing politics look very reasonable, but at the same time make the left look very marginal and associate with them, with uh, these far-right movements. Uh,
0: it's definitely a, a theme we'll come back to again and again. Um, it seems to be the... Uh Defining challenge we have in terms of defining a clear resistance um, to the far right and to Trump, but before leaving the topic, uh, you know, just to, I, I know you all, all agree, but just to remind ourselves, there is real resistance. The prison strike is something we talked about, which hits to the heart of. Of the prison industrial complex and, and, and the American system. Uh, there were Occupy ICE actions, the Black Lives Matter organizing. There's just a lot of really awesome stuff. It's just unfortunate that this term resistance is now being used and uh, for people like McCain, uh, CIA and FBI directors, and people like that. Um, so can, let's, I
1: just, can I
2: just add that absolutely. it's Go ahead. very important to remember that the US is an imperialist force and that one of its primary facets of uh, resistance to US imperialism is elsewhere. So yes, prison strike, yes, the Black Lives Matter movement, yes they are detention stuff. But you know, whether we talk about what's happening in Haiti or Honduras, or so whether we talk about um, uprisings that are happening in Palestine. I mean these are all also resistance to US imperialism in its current face of Trump but also in its previous iterations. And so and that is just as inspiring and often shut out of the news, um, because the US isn't simply a you know Demonic domestic force. It's actually, you know, better in a lot of domestic policy than what it does to people around the world.
0: That's uh, a good point. It's a good segue into the next segment, which is talking about other things in the news, both in North America and internationally, that that maybe we should know about or be concerned about or be inspired around. Um, one thing that definitely happened this this past week, uh, or uh, late last week, actually. Um, the week before is the federal court of appeal decision to not give approval to the Kinder Morgan Trans Mountain Pipeline. Uh, this is in your territory, Harjap, so maybe you can start us off on that, and I'll be asking El Hassan, and I will also uh, chime in about other things that are in the news that maybe we should we should think about. Go ahead, Harjot.
3: Yeah, I, I mean, I, just to say that, like, obviously, an, an important decision for like communities and obviously for the planet. Um, uh, it's It's been um, a long kind of a struggle. Like, I mean, I kind of got involved in some of this work uh, I, I, almost like a decade ago um, to deal with uh, the tar sands and just linking these issues with pipelines and what happens in terms of the uh, expansion of fossil fuels. But. Um, but I, but I do think like it was interesting in terms of the, the decision and that like I mean I don't want to like go into too much detail around um, indigenous uh, opposition, but you know it was a it was an issue around consultation where generally the federal courts have been pretty um, you know uh, loose with their interpretation of what adequate consultation is. Um, so this has been like a pretty major victory, I think, in terms of the, like that it's kind of set a new standard. Um, in terms of uh, um, decisions to look at what um, inadequate or um, at least mention what inadequate consultation looks like. Of course, this isn't, you know, like there are other um, uh, Indigenous uh, uh, legal precedents that are uh, powerful and perhaps even more powerful than this decision in terms of consent and jurisdiction on Indigenous territories. uh, Title cases that have basically um, demonstrated that, um, especially in unceded territories out, out west, that Um, you know, uh, the jurisdiction only lies with Indigenous communities for their territories. Um, But, you know, for for the purposes of like the vast majority of communities that are going through some of these consultations and all sorts of projects being proposed on their territories, it was huge. Um, But also just to say that, like, you know, there's a lot of, um, like like Clackawatt Sound and other places, um, there's a lot of... uh, Sort of celebrity environment, environmental organizers that are kind of um, at the forefront of this. And I think for people uh, listen to this podcast more generally, just to realize the the amount of grassroots resistance that probably isn't going to be highlighted in a lot of the mainstream coverage of, of this movement um, is, is really what was the bedrock of uh, opposition and in, in, um, and not just to like say that indigenous communities obviously have been in in the lead of this kind of opposition and have put, you know, fairly scarce financial resources oftentimes, um, into legal battles, but also just at the grassroots level, um, uh, in, in indigenous communities and in non-indigenous communities, the opposition was really, um, you know, led by grassroots groups that built this awareness and opposition and actions on the ground against the project.
0: To, to reinforce that point, um, I phoned up Kanahos Manuel, who, uh, I think all of you or most of you know really well, um, She's an indigenous warrior in the interior of British Columbia fighting this pipeline. And when I phoned her up, I figured she'd be overrun with calls from media to get response on this. And at the end of the interview, she she told me, you have the exclusive. I'm like, what do you mean? And she's like, you're the only person who phoned me up. And part of that had to do with the fact that she's in the interior so that more of the people who live in the cities like Vancouver get attention, but it also just reinforces your point about the frontline grassroots people sort of uh, being invisibilized, uh, which is not surprising, and which is why we do shows like this. Um, L uh, do you want to share something that's happening in the news somewhere in the world or, or locally?
1: Yeah, so locally, um, there was a victory in a disability rights case that is interesting, which is a group of uh, disability activists took restaurants to court, because they're not providing bathrooms, so they have bathrooms in space, but they'll be down um, stairs or something, and so they're saying that that's adequate, and the people in wheelchairs are saying, but we're you know we have to be on the street, our hands are dirty, and we can't even wash our hands before we go to eat. Um so they had taken the restaurants to court for that, and they actually won that and did get a small settlement, I think a thousand each. but of course, the restaurants are saying, well, it's going to cost too much to make it accessible. Um, But it was a really interesting victory in that sense, because, of course, you see the province, as always, arguing against human rights, right? So all these cases that happen, um, whenever there's a human rights claim, what I always find more interesting, perhaps, is when you look at who the city or the province pays to oppose it, right? So we had a recent case with Halifax Transit, where it was a 12-year case where somebody had been, oh, 18 years, I think, he had been subjected to racial harassment. And, of course, the city fought it every step of the way. And then, of course, when the details come out, it's horrific, and everyone's going, this is so awful. Look what happened. Like someone tried to run somebody over with a bus, you know? Um, and of course the city fought it to the point of saying that racial flurs, um were protected speech under free speech. Um, and then with the province, you have obviously people with disabilities saying, okay, like we literally are, are getting ill because we can't wash our hands. It's not hygienic. And the province fighting back with everything they have to deny them. And again, this becomes about bathroom access. So like, so interesting, I guess, if I tie it to the prison strike, we have people saying, you know, we can't use toilets, like we don't have working mm-hmm. toilets in ourselves. So these are like these levels of people in society being like, we can't go to the bathroom. And you have the province basically fighting. So um, the case itself is important in their activism. But I also think it's always important to remember that these things are not accepted by the people in power, that they constantly fight them I was also going to say, obviously, internationally or nationally, the big news is calling Kaepernick and Nike, and that's interesting, tying into this conversation about resistance, right? Um, that could so be a whole other show. Side, <laughs> lot yeah. Um, So that just ties in with this sort of in the corporate loop, right, that um, Colin Kaepernick's resistance. And people are happy because he's being paid by Nike, and this is great. But, of course, Nike runs sweatshops globally. And also, of course, what happens when this kind of activism is appropriated from the streets and put into an ad for a corporation to profit off of. Um, And so, again, like particularly for black people, on the one hand, obviously – celebrate Kaepernick we're happy to see him like I think everybody feels happy for Kaepernick but of course also we have to engage with that critique of Nike as a corporation and of course the inevitable thing that happens that um, I call it the woke industrial complex right (laughs) so that Black Lives Matter becomes a slogan and that becomes a corporate slogan we have um, you know people giving like $40,000 $40,000 weekends to workshops to the corporate people at Yale about what is Black Lives Matter, right? And this is what always happens that the movements get co-opted, and then how do you resist that co-optation and continue to do radical action? I'll say one more quick thing. I've been saying this about the prison strike. I know what's going to happen is the province is going to wait a few months so they don't look like they're bowing down to the demands of the prisoners, and then they're going to uh, give money to people who didn't speak out about the strike to do programs and then say that you know, mm-hmm. this group, they're addressing the problem, right? And this is what always happens, is that Radical people hit the streets, people put their lives on the line, people in prison put their lives and safety on the line, and then you always have this uh, moderate core, the bourgeois core of people, the, the programmers, the social workers, the professors, whoever it is, and I say this as a professor, you know, but then uh, get the grants and the money off the back of that, and they're mm-hmm. installed at the table where the people that risk their lives are always held out, same reason why the resistors on the pipeline are not in the media, right?
0: El, um mm-hmm. you have referenced a couple of times now the government in Nova Scotia uh, both in terms of the justice minister's response to um the prison strike and now with this uh this inspiring organizing around um disabled rights uh, could you just give a quick synopsis about who who the hell is this government like and uh um yeah i mean like, I, to to be fair you know like those of us in Ontario Quebec BC like you know, often don't pay attention to to that, this kind of stuff. So let us know who, who's in government in Nova Scotia, the people you've been referencing.
1: So we have a Liberal government um, under Stephen McNeil, the Premier. Um, liberal, obviously, in heavy, <laughs> scare quotes. Uh, austerity Liberal government. Um, so throughout their term, they're extremely hostile to workers. So they um, have contract disputes with nurses. Teachers went on, not strike, but on a, a work. They refused to do anything. They worked to rule. They refused to do anything more than teach because of the contract. Um, they really disputed with every union. Um, you know, like we have problems at the hospitals, what's happening. So it's it's really just an awful austerity government. And um, this is what we're dealing with here. So, of course, what we're going to be caught into is we also have a bunch of uh, PC leadership race going on with some awful uh, populist right wing, far right people. Probably the best one in the race mm-hmm. is the one that said that Jamaicans are lazy and smoke a bunch of weed. So weed shouldn't be legalized because all the Jamaicans are gonna contaminate the wow. province. And that might be the best one. Like That might be the one that like we have the most wow. hope for. Um, and, of course, we have our own Doug Ford wannabe, you know, so, of course, what's going to happen is we're all going to be pressured into voting for this awful liberal government to prevent that from happening. Mm-hmm.
0: Hassan, uh, what do you want to share that's that's in the news?
2: Uh, I guess a couple of things. I mean, I think just jumping off what Al's saying, we have the Doug Ford, <laughs> everyone's trying to resist. Um, I mean, but I also think that you know, we're seeing this across the country with uh, Jason Kenney in the wings in um, Alberta, with CAQ possibly coming up in Quebec. that there is uh, the shift towards the right that's happening at the provincial level, setting the stage for the federal level. But here in Ontario, at least, I mean, one thing that's constantly happening is all of the, you know, every week in the last few weeks, Doug Ford's made a new announcement, and it creates kind of a new wave of different kind of um, disaggregated protests. So on one are fighting about this cuts to the curriculum where sexual education will be you know cut down and will revert and will take out um sort of the improvements that were made under the previous government there are changes that are happening to schools there are changes that have their mass layoffs that are happening um and what we're seeing and you know like the indigenous ministers have been taken out six um different ministries on social services have been merged into one. Um, so it's kind of this onslaught that's happening on multiple fronts. The Toronto city council um, has been cut in half, et cetera. And what it's doing is that we're seeing people really disaggregated and focusing on different types of fights and rather than building a united front. And not only that, we're also seeing that and um, there's kind of people are using the tactics that they have in the previous 15 years because it's been 15 years of a liberal government so a, pro- a politics of spectacle where the notion is if we're on the streets and we're protesting and there's bad media coverage he will bow down to pressure which actually is just not true it's not you know the the context has changed but the tactics and strategies are not um, and so that's really i think worrying to a lot of people but it's going to take some time to sort of Move beyond um, the tactics and strategies people are so used to doing, reports, press conferences, protests, that kind of thing. Um, the other thing that I wanted to share, which uh, may or may not be in people's news, is the massive resistance taking place in India. Um, you know, over 200,000 farm workers and peasants marched uh, against the fascist uh, right wing government of uh, Narendra Modi. And, you know, we've seen sort of the rise of Modi, and Netanyahu. Um, in Hungary, you know, with Okaban, all of this Trump. Um, but, you know, in, in India, this, like, huge scale, and there was first, uh, the first day of protest was actually led by women. Um, and, you know, you can just hear the, the the slogan is, you know, we are not flowers, we are sparks. That was kind of the chant that was taking place. And you had tens of thousands of women marching in the streets um, in the rain, followed by peasants and workers also taking to the street um, confronting Uh, the fascist government, which has been locking up activists, you know, day after day after day. um, I mean, so this is, I think, uh, important to note that the sort of populist right-wing fascist um, emergence globally is seeing sort of resistance from the very bottom, right? These are um, peasants, um, landless peasants, so peasants and farmers without even land. um, Dalits um, who are actually sort of, you know, taking the fight. To Modi's doorstep, and that's promising. That's something we should be learning from.
0: I guess uh, I'll chime in too, and I'll share two things: uh, one from where I live right now, and one from where my mom used to live <laughs> before she immigrated to Canada. Um, so there's a Quebec election, and I'm sure you've heard a little bit about it. But what's really fucked up <laughs> about the current election? It was it was bound to happen. Is the focus on immigration and the the focus on lowering immigration? So the the party that's primed to win. Um, it's not a guarantee they'll win, but it's the it's the more right-wing party. They're called CAC, uh, Coalition Avenir Quebec, um which which is sort of a a, a breakaway in many ways because they, they downplay sovereignty. They're not a sovereignist party. At the same time, they're right wing economically. So they've sort of captured the political moment. But their leader, Francois Legault, um has said that he wants to cut immigration in Quebec by twenty percent. Um Also, though, he's demanded that there be a values test that people have to sign. And even more recently, he said that if people don't pass a French test after three years, they can be expelled. And what at least the mainstream media has taken the task for that, uh, just on a more procedural thing, which is that Quebec is not allowed to deport anybody or expel anybody. That's a federal responsibility. But obviously, the reason why he's saying all these things is to play dog whistle politics to... The populist far right, um, the sort of people who like La Meute and people like that, um, we'll see how that plays out. Um, in the context here in Quebec, uh, the Liberal Party is the party that doesn't play those games, um, or not as badly as 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 the CAC does or the Parti Quebecois. And I guess the other thing I'll share is also from India. Um, it's something really inspiring, which is uh, the, the decision by the Supreme Court to overturn something called Section 377, which criminalized gay sex in India. And I guess on one level, um, you know, India decriminalizing gay sex and this, this amazing victory for queer grassroots struggles in India, uh, you know, that sort of sort of stands on its own. But one one aspect of it that I, I didn't quite appreciate until I interviewed someone from No Borders Media, Pony su who who was involved in the legal challenge, is that this is an incredible act of decolonization because this, this section, Section 377, exists as far back as British times. It was brought in during a Victorian era. And the idea that somehow this uh, gay sex being decriminalized is sort of India becoming more westernized is sort of a false narrative. It's, India's always had a sort of Um, a more nuanced take on different gender identities. I don't want to overstate that, but, um, uh, and so this was an act of decolonization. And another thing I didn't quite appreciate is that um, this Section 377 exists in all kinds of Commonwealth countries. Uh, Trinidad overturned it fairly recently. It's still in the books. And in some cases, they actually still call it Section 377. It's the exact same number because it's the same penal code that the British brought in back when they had colonized all these countries worldwide. So, Uh, that that is uh um, uh, go ahead
1: so morris morris Tomlinson, who's uh jamaican Mm -hmm. who was a Mm -hmm. refugee from um homophobic threats in jamaica but he talks about this right so it's the same law that's on the books across the Commonwealth. it's like 1865 law um and of course people now because in the last 20 years you know canada the u.s has become more lgbtq friendly and now this becomes the sign of the savagery of african countries or caribbean countries or um so-called third world countries oh look how homophobic they are and of course they were the ones that brought these laws and they're the ones that brought the bibles Mm -hmm. my cousin was born in 1979 in jamaica and my Mm -hmm. family was scared that she wouldn't even be able to go to school because she didn't have a father registered on her birth certificate and the family literally had to like force a marriage like we're back in 1800 right because um you couldn't Mm -hmm. enter basically any decent school because they were run by the church and this is 1979 Right?
0: Wow. um
1: so these are the kind of laws that were brought in and now of course it turned back on us like we are these these violent, um, sexually backwards people, right? Um but one of the things he also talks about is he remembers growing up that Jamaica was um you know, people knew they were gay and they were just bachelors and it was fine, right? I mean it's actually partly the growth of the cable television, so all these US pastors um get piped into the airwaves and are able to to bring this homophobia into Jamaica, right? So in the eighties and nineties in particular, you get this shift and particularly in the nineties. Uh, So you think the pastor that um, did—when they got rid of the real pastor that Obama um, had—what's his name again? Uh, The guy in Chicago. right? And and the one they end up having, Rick something or other, um, actually is the person that's really responsible for the death penalty law in Uganda, because he was going into Uganda and preaching homophobic stuff. A lot of Canadian churches that have tax-exempt status here are the ones going to Jamaica and to the Caribbean and starting these homophobic churches, right? And then are basically getting the money to do that through charity status here right? So that's also a really important piece that these countries haven't, you know, so-called always be homophobic. It's colonialism and also and also as a result of economic instability. So it's tied to, for example, in Jamaica, the, the massive debt that happens, right? Um, and as people are poor, you bring in those gay people that are the threat. Um, this is something that white people are bringing to us, right? So that's a really important narrative to recognize. Maurice Tomlinson has talked about that, right? That, um, that this rise of homophobia in Jamaica is tied to economic and tied to political and tied to particularly foreign political interference.
0: That's an awesome Mm -hmm. point, uh, El. Um, We have very little time left, uh, so I just want to move into a final topic area. In doing so, I'll I'll just reference Sweden and Brazil quickly. Um, Sweden is Mm -hmm. having their elections today, um, and the anti-immigrant far-right party, which isn't far-right enough for some of the races in Sweden, because they have even a further far-right party, but this far right party has the potential of uh mm-hmm. of uh gaining a lot more seats. They're already the third party, so um it's it's really disturbing. And also in Brazil there's a populist uh right wing candidate who models himself after Trump and is, is playing into a lot of racism to gain power in Brazil who was and stabbed. stands pardon me? Who was stabbed. He was stabbed, yeah, but he'll survive and that stabbing might um Uh, might actually push him over over, exactly the sympathy and all and what have you and it was interesting when i read about the stabbing i didn't want to get into too much but initially it was Mm -hmm. supposed to be superficial wound and what have you but then they played it up they were like oh he almost died now he's going to come back and this was all coming from his son Yeah. yeah and uh so you know you can't help but think that you know people, and, and politics at that level is a nasty, nasty game, and you're going to exaggerate and play up things, but r- regardless of the stabbing, this person stands a chance of, of taking power, but I use those two, mm-hmm. two examples, Brazil and the far right, and Sweden and the far right, and we've already alluded to the far right, to, to bring it back here since all of us, it's not going to be every time that I'm talking to people all within the Canadian state, this is a show that I'm hopefully is going to be really international and talk to people all over the place, but since we're talking within the Canadian state, there's a lot of anti far right stuff to talk about very locally, I know in Toronto this weekend mm-hmm. today and yesterday mm-hmm. uh, there were there's going to be there's going to be a demonstration today and there was one yesterday against Pegida and one called Danford United against hate. There've been things in Edmonton mm-hmm. and Nanaimo. I know pretty sure that L and I have stuff to share. Uh, so maybe we'll start with you, Hassan, because you're going to be heading off to this demo soon. Um, and there was one yesterday, right. but talk about uh, this this uh, the the far right uh, Islamophobes, anti-immigrant folks mobilizing in Toronto. Uh, these mm-hmm. past, uh, this past so, I mean, just while. to give
2: you a very, very quick uh, understanding, I mean, there has been over, there's been more than one protest a month from the neo Nazis and the fascists since February of 2017, right? So we're now a year and a half with, um, you know, so they're very common. And what we're seeing is that, you know, they're growing in size and sometimes they go smaller. There's internal fractures between the um, fascists and the neo Nazis. But for example, yesterday, There were 70 um, Nazis and fascists who were out on the street. Many of them armed, um, and they were being confronted by just over or around 40 people. And so there was more of them, uh, and they were marching down the street. Um, But what's even more um, upsetting and egregious is that, um, according to some accounts, over 100 police officers came out, um, and the anti-fascists sort of formed a line to stop the uh, Nazis from marching on the street and I can't believe I'm saying these words um, and then the um, police sort of beat these um, beat the protesters back for about an hour, you know, severely hurting a whole bunch of people, arresting a whole bunch of people, um, at least five I believe. Uh, charges have now been laid and um, finally sort of piercing through the march to just create space for the Nazis to march on the street they wanted to. Um, because, And so, you know, we've seen sort of this, you know, just a few weeks ago, there was a really big counter-mobilization and none of the Pegida folks showed up. I know Jagi were there. Um, so it kind of goes back and forth where I think the, there's kind of a collective uh, collectivization that's happening of the neo Nazis and fascists, as long as they're, you know, directly anti-Muslim. So that's kind of where the uh, circle's really closed around is, They're not that anti-Semitic, they're actually not necessarily always anti-immigrant, but they're certainly anti-Muslim. And that's kind of the like (laughs) joining force that is now being echoed over and over again. Thus today's, yesterday's march was framed as a march to remember the victims of September 11th killed by Muslims. Uh, Today is about uh, the shooting that happened in Danforth uh, by possibly, you know, allegedly a Muslim person. So that's kind of the conversation we're facing um but it is it is it is quite disconcerting it's a uh very it's a very um confusing time that we're facing right now um and there's not enough of a resistance and a mobilization against the far right uh on the streets um so it's but at the same time there's not also not enough of a mobilization against sort of the center left uh leanings that are happening so um it's um how big of an issue? How many people are turning out? We're talking about only seventy people. Um, it's disconcerting, but we're not being able to mobilise to stop them. Um, and yet, a lot of people are able to focus on the far right because it's very close to kind of this like Trump notion, and that we, I was talking about earlier. So it's um it's a difficult moment I think for analysis and for action in what to do in these very specific types of people who are engaging in the. So uh, I don't know what to say, really. Maybe you all have good advice on how well, to proceed.
0: There's, there's uh, some tactical successes that were in the news in Edmonton. The soldiers of Odin, uh, far-right, anti-immigrant, Islamophobic group, uh, mm-hmm. tried to do some sort of food drive, um, but they were effectively shut down by protest. Uh, so there's a case where the Soldiers of Odin is pretending to be sort of on the side of poor and homeless people. But there's something that happened in Nanaimo. Also, that was a tactical yeah. success for our side. Uh, maybe I'll leave. I'll let Harjap, who's out in BC, uh, talk a bit about that.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's just like this, like that ironic thing, right? Like on the one hand, they want to pretend like uh, you know, they're opposed to immigration because poor people in Canada need support and they're going to do these drives and that kind of stuff. And at the same time, they're basically attacking, like, you know, this um, site, this city, there's been this growing, um, uh, you know, spaces throughout the, the territories here, Nanaimo, Maple Ridge, other places where people have been organizing to support uh, tent cities and people, um, you know, just fighting for homes in their communities, Right. And um, and the soldiers of Odin were there to try to take down the city. Now, like the response, obviously, from um, grassroots movements, uh, lots of pretty amazing people in Nanaimo that showed up, uh, the Alliance Against Displacement. It's been this uh, um, organization that's been organizing, organizing all around uh, Metro Vancouver, but also now on Vancouver Island and other places around um, fighting, uh, you know, uh, fighting uh, displacement and them evictions and everything else that people are facing, but also doing it uh, quite explicitly from uh, anti-capitalist and anti-colonial um, uh, organizing points. So, um, so, you know, these folks, these folks all organized and like the opposition was really great, but um, you know, it it just goes to speak that I think people can mobilize around these issues, but I would echo um, similarly to what um, Hassan's saying that like, there, there hasn't been a really um, amazing uh, uh, ability to keep these folks off the streets. Like there's been um, moments where there's been an um, uh sorry, a demonstration that's been organized and people just didn't feel like they would have the number to confront them or that they were worried about security issues or whatever else there is. So um, there is, I absolutely agree, like a larger conversation in terms of uh, organizing to um, actually keep them off the streets. Um, but but also that there are there have been these uh, as uh, Jaggy you're highlighting these tactical victories that have happened and especially in the ammo that was the case.
0: I'll maybe share um, a couple of things from Quebec and Montreal and then El I'll, I'll let you have the final word before we wrap up. Um, uh, I mean. You probably heard in the national news when Trudeau was being heckled, um, and you know he's being criticized by some people on the right, and even by the Conservative Party, which is the right, <laughs> uh, for like calling a woman a racist. But she was a racist, and she was tied to uh, to far right groups here in Quebec. Um, uh, so that happened in the summer, but more recently, now that there's this election campaign, La Meute, one of the preeminent far-right groups that has the ability to mobilize, they are actually intervening in the election. They haven't quite come out and said who they're for. They're likely, they'll be for the CAC or nobody, but um, they put out a manifesto. And what they're doing is they're putting um, their uh, wolf paw, because La Meute means the wolf pack, so this wolf paw uh, outside of the offices on the sidewalk, uh, sort of, sort of in chalk or in paint, Uh, And they put the slogan, la meute vous servez, la meute is watching you. Uh, It's really intimidating. It comes across as intimidating. Party leaders have complained about it. But um, they're actually intervening in this election campaign. They're actually pushing that politics. And uh, that's something that's happening here that's pretty disconcerting. Uh, Sort of looking ahead. Uh, Some of the anti-racists and anti-fascists in town were organizing a demonstration against racism and fascism. Unfortunately, it's after the election, but still, I think it'll be really relevant. But that's sort of some of the flavor right now that uh, this far-right stuff is taking in the election. Elle, do you have uh, anything to share on your end?
1: Yeah, I was just going to say, obviously, white supremacist activity is a constant in Canada, but if you want to call it the sort of current revival wave, I think Mm -hmm. we were one of the canaries in the coal mine for that because that was when the Proud Boys um, attacked the Indigenous ceremony Mm -hmm. ceremony. on Canada Day, what, a couple of years ago now, and that was when people were first sort of realizing who the Proud Boys were, right? I guess maybe attacked might be a too strong word, but, you know, came by and interrupted the ceremony. And mm-hmm. at that point, there was obviously, so, so we sort of see, obviously, how this organizing has been rolling down, right? So at that point, they came marching up, and there was a lot of, who are these people, what's happening? And of course, now, since then, there's been so many, you know, um, like, more Of this organizing. The other thing I was going to say when you were talking about um, the far-right organizing um, marching because of the shooting is, of course, in Moncton is where a number of white people have shot a number of police. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, So, Justin Bork a few years ago, and then obviously the recent shooting that happened, another Mm -hmm. white man. And what sort of came out about that is he had become virulently anti-immigrant, right? And he's on Mm -hmm. video. So, there's a video that came out here where he was um, standing outside the legislature with, like, no Sharia law you know, and that, of course, none of that was intervened in, right? So, the same thing when mm-hmm. F- Faith Goldie took the picture of the police and they said, Oh, we have no idea who she is. And it's like, So, if mm-hmm, you don't know who she is, let's assume that's true. Why is it that you're spying on Black Lives Matter and spying on Idols mm-hmm. and War activists and spying on environmental activists you don't know who Faith Goldie is? You know, here's this person mm-hmm. talking about Sharia law that got banned from a coffee shop for the violence of his interactions, but nobody surveyed him, right? Um, mm-hmm, so, you mm-hmm. see this very dangerous stuff where, um, The media is sort of really just normalizing this and then acting shots and these shootings happening. But um, there's all these signs all along. And we've, again, out on the East Coast, um, there's a long history, for example, the KKK has been like was really active out here. Um, And, yeah, we had the Proud Boys quite early on. And it's going to be frightening to see what happens, obviously, with our coming elections and the growing of the so-called populist movement. So um, Mm -hmm. I think... We also had the NCA out here, so the National um, what is it, Citizens Alliance. So they had marched the Apple Blossom Parade <laughs> and have been sort of chased out multiple times now. There's been a number of attempted rallies and people have been organizing against them. But yeah, it's an active question. Like, how do we effectively organize against fascism, especially because they use this free speech, free expression, free assembly, and the left is censoring people very effectively right, to shut down opposition. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. I just want to say one, I mean, just echoing what you said, uh, like. Definitely, I think, there have been much more violence at anti-FAR uh, and fascist rallies in Toronto. Almost all of the violence has been perpetuated by the police. Um, you know, it's like, the, not, you know, of course there's like massive surveillance that's happening over the communities and not on white supremacists, but like actively defending white supremacists on every mm-hmm. street mobilization is the, sort of this, the most common pattern here. Um, and I think the other thing, just sort of for all of us, like, I think, I don't know what's happening on in your end, but at least here we it's almost as if some people who believe that the really big problem is the rise of the populist right and that's who we must fight against. Other folks who are talking about sort of the sort of Doug Ford type of right wing politics and other people are talking about sort of the Trudeau type of right wing politics, right? Which is sort of the austerity, um the um, uh the anti indigenous um stuff that's happening. So It's almost about the issue, at least what we're facing here, is that there isn't the analysis that this is a common front on their end. (laughs) Like, you know, it's like from Trump to Trudeau, it's actually one sort of common line, and it's the same people who need to be organizing against the same things uh, rather than this is just for, you know, the block with its face mask and this is for the, like, good people who (laughs) do it in suits and uh, at press conferences. And that division, I think, is greatly... Uh, being um, used um, all of the time. And I think that, I don't know, that's the worry here, at least, I think. Uh,
0: there's a lot more we we can talk about, but we're out of time, uh, out of studio time, at least. Uh, today's show was uh, a bit of an experiment, but uh, at least for me, it's a successful one. Um, all three of you shared a lot of insightful stuff, and I think it's important for us to be on top of the news, share share what's going on, share analysis, share what's happening behind the scenes, so, Harjab Grewal in Vancouver, Syed Hassan in Toronto, El Jones in Halifax, and I'm Jaggi Singh here in Montreal. Uh, I just wanted to thank all of you for, uh, for appearing here on this Snowboarders Media News Roundup. Thank you. Thank
3: you, thank you. Thank you all. Great. Thank,
1: thank you. you. Yeah. Take care. Bye. And thank you, everybody, for all the work you do.
0: You were listening to a No Borders Media News Roundup on September 9th, 2018, featuring a conversation between L Jones from Halifax, Syed Hassan from Toronto, Harjab Grewal from Vancouver, and me, Jaggi Singh, speaking from Montreal. No Borders Media, based in Toronto and Montreal, is an autonomous left-wing media network. We share and create content that supports the struggles of communities in resistance, with a focus on the self-determination struggles of Indigenous peoples, migrants, refugees, and working-class people of colour, all in the context of opposition to capitalism and colonialism. Some current focuses include migrant justice, resistance to borders, anti-fascism, and anarchism. We are in the early stages of our independent media project. To stay in touch, send us an email at network at gmail.com, or look for No Borders Media on Facebook and SoundCloud. Much more to come in the coming weeks and months.